This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. The Buck Sexton Show. Bill Clinton offers up all kinds of reasons for why Hillary lost the election. Here's the latest. Clip one, go. I've never cast a vote I was prouder of. You know, I watched her work for two years. I watched her battle through that bogus email deal. Be vindicated at the end when Secretary Powell came out. She fought through that. She fought through everything. And she prevailed against it all. But, you know, then at the end we had the Russians and the... And the FBI deal, but she couldn't prevail against that. She did everything else and still won by two points. Got to love it. David French joins us now. He's a senior fellow at the National Review Institute. David, I'm correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, if we were to pull out a dictionary, prevailing usually means winning. So she prevailed against <laughs> it all until she didn't prevail. Right. I mean, you know, this is it's it's interesting how quickly. Well, it shouldn't be interesting because he's a master politician, but how quickly um, Bill Clinton can spew out about every single Democratic talking point about the loss in less than 20 seconds. Um, it, she didn't actually lose as one of them because of the because of the popular vote that if she did to the extent that she did lose is because of Russia is because of bogus emails. It was because of WikiLeaks. I mean, you you name it, the the, the avalanche of excuses being made, uh, frankly, is is getting more than a little bit tiresome. Uh, and by the way, you wrote on NashReview.com about one of the, the favorite excuses of the left, and that's just old-fashioned, straight-up racism. <laughs> yeah. Um, this has got to be you know, the most irritating and the most destructive at the same time. It's irritating because it's incandescently stupid. So here you have a white, an older white man beating an older white woman, and the reason is racism. And when you dig into the numbers— you see that one of the reasons why the white man beat the white woman is because some voters who had voted for the first African-American president switched to Trump. Um, so uh, w- wait a minute. Did these, guys, did these voters suddenly become racist between 2008 and 2016 or 2012 and 2016? Or did they find Hillary Clinton to be a bad candidate? Uh, you know, and, and then when you begin to, to dig a little bit deeper, you actually find that Trump had a smaller percentage of the white vote than Mitt Romney did in 2012, but he had a larger percentage of the black vote and a larger percentage of the Hispanic vote than Romney did. And those are two of the things that helped push him over the top. But racism, it's 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 really extraordinary. It is kind of amazing, really, given that the media, the two main reasons not to vote for Trump that they offered up were that he's a racist and that he's a misogynist. Uh, that he did better than Romney did with minorities is, is seems to be a surprise to a lot of folks. Yeah, uh, you know, absolutely. It, it It's a surprise to an awful lot of people, unless you take a step back for a minute and you realize that, you know, maybe this Democratic coalition of the ascendant that they were bragging about so much after 08 and, and 2012, this demographic coalition that was going to hand them the White House now and forever – wasn't so much a product of the Democratic Party as it was a product of Barack Obama. Maybe it's the case that 
to vote for the first African-American president in American history with all that that means historically and all the excitement that it created. And then to reelect him, you're going to create a coalition that it won't be easy to create ever again because you're never again again to have this incredible historical first. And then and then when you replace Barack Obama on the ticket or you uh, succeed Barack Obama on the ticket with a, a uh, ex- the second most disliked politician in the history of, of likability polling, you're going to have to expect that maybe your turnout isn't going to be quite as awesome, awesome as it was in 08, for example. You've also got a piece here uh, speaking about all things Trump and, and the cabinet. Uh, Trump cabinet picks should fight their own bureaucracies. Before I get into the fighting their own bureaucracies, though, David, everyone who listens to the show knows you've been you've been critical of Trump all, all along. He's now the president or president-elect. He's making some choices. What do you think about the cabinet he's pulling together? You know, overall, I'm pleased with it. Um, I, you know, I think Scott Pruitt's a good choice to head the EPA. Uh, I think he's got the right idea of what the EPA's role is, uh, that it's one to be bounded by law and not just to effectuate environmental uh, change wherever it can, wherever it can imagine that it can. I think that Jeff Sessions will be a good attorney general. I think he's a very good choice for that. I think uh, General Mattis is a brilliant cho- choice for Secretary of Defense. I mean, um, he's one of the most revered officers in the entire military. And then to put him at the head of the, of the Pentagon, I think, is a brilliant choice. So I think it, overall, on balance, he's made good choices. Betsy DeVos is an outstanding choice for Secretary of Education. Um, so all of all of these choices I like very much. I'm not quite sure what Ben Carson knows about housing and urban development, <laughs> but we'll have to see. Uh, but overall, I think particularly on these really key cabinet choices, he's made good ones. I, I question, however, his choice for Secretary of State. I, uh, of the menu of options available to him in a climate in which the, the um, relationship with Russia and Vladimir Putin and the the problems of, of Trump's expressed um, views towards Putin are now front and center in American, in American political discourse and then denominate uh, as Secretary of State a guy who received an uh, Order of Friendship Medal from Putin himself is a little bit problematic. Um, now, I do think it's interesting that the people rallying to Tillerson's defense more than anyone else are, uh, the, are not only uh, Bush-era foreign policy officials, but George W. Bush himself um, called Bob Corker to talk about Tillerson. So um, given all that uh, Trump said about Bush's foreign policy in the, in the primary campaign in the general election, to now have the Bush foreign policy team mobilizing in support of Rex Tillerson is one of the stranger ironies of this entire process. So returning, if we, uh, if we can, to the sort of central, well, to the, the title and the central theme of your piece about Trump's cabinet picks fighting their own bureaucracies. Uh, how how do you think they should go about that? I mean, especially if you mentioned Pruitt at the EPA, and and how much good can they really do, uh, given that they're going to be coming up against a lot of very entrenched civil servants who aren't yeah. going to want to be told that what they've been doing is no longer the way it's going to go. Yeah, you know, you raise a great a great point, and and I think the the short answer is it's extremely difficult to fight against the bureaucracy if you leave their power, fundamental power, untouched. And what I mean by that is those bureaucrats, their actual job is to enforce regulations that the agencies have promulgated. And so long as those regulations remain on the books and untouched, 
it's very difficult for an agency head to come in and adjust enforcement priorities, for example, or argue that they should take this case and not that case. But instead, if you begin to actually dismantle the regulatory framework itself to repeal regulations, then what you do is you strip the bureaucrats, no matter how progressive or activist they might be, of their power. And so I think that that's one of the things that a uh, that that uh, Trump cabinet officials should be focused on isn't so much sort of saying, OK, given the pre-existing regulatory superstructure, how can I adjust enforcement priorities, which they'll be fighting every tooth and nail every step of the way? How can they come in and say, what are key powers that I can strip from this agency where this agency has overstepped its lawful bounds? And and I can think of in multiple federal agencies off the top of my head, multiple areas in which they have overstepped their bounds lawfully. They have strayed from their mission, truthfully, and um, need to be stripped of their powers and refocused on the basics. And which, I mean, if you had to pick one, if you had to pick one, David, which of the federal regulatory agencies you think is the is the biggest statist rogue elephant? I, you know, if I had to pick one, I will. I'll pick. Can I cheat and pick two? Sure, we'll give you um, two. We're in a generous mood today. Okay. <laughs> Department of Education and EPA. Um, Department of Education has upended both higher education sec- and secondary education with a series of memoranda on Title IX that have created nightmares of enforcement, nightmarish loss of due process of of students on college campuses. Uh, have roiled and, and unsettled college campuses from coast to coast through a series of memoranda, literally memoranda, that um, expanded the scope of the agency uh, of the agency's work and the scope of its civil, quote unquote civil rights work way beyond the law. So that's one. And then the EPA, of course. I mean, the EPA has taken the Clean Air Act and em- empowered by the Supreme Court of the United States to some extent has used that as just a sledgehammer on uh, the American energy industry in the name of climate change. And look, if, if the American people want an activist federal government on climate change, then they can vote in legislators who pass laws to that effect. However, the EPA is in, in waging war on, on climate change without any law and without any specific acts being passed by Congress empowering this other than acts that have existed for decades that the EPA keeps steadily expanding through their scope through regulatory rulemaking. And the consequences on our economy are profound. I mean, you're talking about, for example, rules that are have such a negligible effect on on carbon emissions that, you know, just a couple of days of the Chinese economy working at full at full capacity are enough to wipe out all of the gains, the carbon gains from EPA rules, and yet thousands of jobs are lost. So, uh, you know, again, the EPA is is fully in the grips of this climate change hysteria. It's pushing the needle to the red, so to speak, on its ability to, on, on its law, uh, rulemaking, and it needs to be reined in. And if Congress wants to do something about climate change, well, then by golly, Congress can pass a law. Let's not delegate all this to the bureaucrats. Speaking to David French, who's a senior fellow at the National Review Institute. You guys all know David. Uh, David, I want to ask you one more thing, and just to get your take. Uh, we've been talking a lot, obviously, today on the show about what happened in Berlin and also what happened in Ankara. But just focusing in on the Berlin terrorist attack uh, for a moment, 
people always offer up the what can we do and more security and more intelligence cooperation. Is there really much we can do or is this the new normal? I mean, this, you know, I know you you actually know about this stuff is why, you know what I mean? A lot of people yeah. go on TV and talk about it. You actually did this in Iraq and you know the enemy. And uh, people ask me, what can we do? And I always say, well, it's complicated. <laughs> well, number one, there's no easy answer, uh, particularly now that um, ISIS has, in a way, revolutionized jihadist tactics. Uh, I say in a way because the Palestinians have already done this in their intifadas. Essentially, it's tell, uh, what ISIS did that is different from al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda was focused on the mega attack, hijack multiple airliners at the same time, blow up embassies. All of those things are really hard to pull off, and, and once you're aware that their plots are in motion, are easier to defend. But what ISIS did is said, well, we don't need to do that. Let's just do like what the Palestinians do in the West Bank. And that is whatever you have that can, you, you can be used to commit an act of jihad, use it. Car, kitchen knife, rifle, anything that you can find. And once that cat was out of the bag, and once, we have, we, and, and once ISIS had already been allowed to exist so long that it, that it helped spread that ideology from its safe havens in the Middle East, um, it gets really, really tough. Uh, to to defeat terrorism, uh, and by defeat I mean eliminate it to the point where it's it's meaningless in in public life. It gets very very difficult. Now, I will say this: if you do annihilate ISIS, if you do crush it, if you do leave the caliphate in ruins, you are going to have fewer people inspired because jihadists are inspired by winners, not losers, as a general rule. And so, if you can crush ISIS, you will remove at least some of the inspiration. But unfortunately, not all of it, because, as I said, the cat is out of the bag and this sort of spontaneous jihadist syndrome. Well, not really spontaneous because they're radicalized over a period of months and years. But this individual jihadist syndrome where they use whatever they have, wherever they are to kill as many people as they can. I'm afraid that might be a new normal, at least for a while. Yeah, I I agree with you. And uh, I'm also appreciative that I knew you would. Didn't just say we need more intelligence cooperation with our allies. <laughs> Every time somebody goes on TV and says that, I want to say, you know, it's not because this, these horrible things aren't happening because the Germans were like, we're just not going to share that with somebody, you know, or, or, or the French weren't going to share with the German anyway. But, but I digress. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> intelligence agencies have been trying really hard ever since 9 11 to stop these attacks. Yeah. Th- th- this like is prime just, directive number one. Th- this is. Yeah, this is all they, they've got literally, I mean, more people that I could even name, I mean, or think of in terms of the number off the top of my head in this country and abroad handling this. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people just trying to prevent terrorist attacks. But we got to bounce for now. David French of National Review, everybody. Uh, David, what's your Twitter handle? At David A. French. There we go. At David A. French. David, thanks so much. Talk to you soon. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. The Buck Sexton Show. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. 